We're on the sixth commandment today. Open your Bibles to Exodus 20. And the sixth commandment together with the seventh and the eighth is extremely short. We have it, you shall not murder. And yet in the Hebrew, it's actually just two words. No murder or no kill. Those two words, just like we're going to see for the seventh and the eighth, they encompass so much. As we start, I just want you to think, how did you do with those two words this past week? How do you assess even the past week with respect to the sixth commandment? Even more, I want to ask you, how did you rest in this commandment this past week? Have you thought of the sixth commandment that way? Had you rest in it this past week? So the King James Version, we all know well, says thou shalt not kill. And it's kind of ambiguous and confusing to us, especially if we don't focus on how it's used in the context of it. You wonder, is there, is there no killing? You know, how about my hunting, my fishing? None of that? How about those mosquitoes that you know, bother me in the afternoon. And you know, there are theologians who use this commandment to say there's no killing across the board. You can, you can read it even. Uh, but obviously this commandment deals with people. That's the, that's the point of the commandment. This is Israel's constitution, the 10 commandments that they heard God speak audibly at the foot of the mountain when he binds them into a nation of redeemed people. How are you going to live together as a people? Thou shalt not kill. Uh, At the same time, we do say that as image bearers of God, we respect all life. Um, We respect all life, all kinds of life, because God created it. He cares for it. He gains glory for himself through it, through the animal kingdom and through the stars. And he has planted us as stewards over it. We, we care about it. We care about our environment. But this command deals with humans and human life. And God proclaims in it the sanctity of all human life. That human life is, is sacred. It's holy. It's set apart. It's distinct. It's inherently valuable. It's invested with special dignity because God created it in his image to to live in fellowship and relationship with none other than he himself and to reflect who he is before the rest of creation. God stresses how uniquely precious your lives are here. And just imagine what a Hebrew person listening to this command would feel like when just three months earlier he was ground to the dust as a slave working until he died thinking his life did not matter and now God booms from the mountain, thou shalt not kill your life is sacred and precious to me. And you are in my image. 
You are in my image. So the translation, you shall not murder, is probably much better. In Hebrew, there are eight verbs for kill, at least. And the word here is chosen carefully. It's never used in the scriptures for a judicial killing, for a military killing, for a sacrificial killing. It's murder. It's intentional premeditated killing of a person in God's image. However, it encompasses a bit more than that. And so I think maybe a better translation would be, you shall not kill unlawfully. All right, now I just realized I have a ton of lists. There were three big lists in this sermon, and here's the first one. So I apologize on the front end, but I want to give you a brief overview of our rules for interpreting the commandments because these next three commandments are so big. And so seven quick rules, I promise. But these really enrich the commandments for us to review them. The first is the rule of grace. We don't obey these 10 commandments to get redeemed. We obey them as redeemed people. The prologue to the commandments is crucial. I've already brought you out of the house of slavery now. The second rule, the rule of love, these commands show us how to love God and how to love others. It's a track to run on. What does love look like? Third, the rule of scripture. The whole scripture explains and applies these commandments, and Jesus is our best interpreter. Fourth, the rule of negatives and positives. Scripture shows the negatives require the positive, and the positive requires the negative. Thou shalt not kill means you're all about life. Fifth, the rule of outside and inside. The commands themselves and the rest of Scripture prove they don't just apply to our external conduct. They get right down to the heart and to the tongue. Six, the rule of greater and lesser. Scripture indicates that each of the Ten Commandments is like the pinnacle of a mountain. We could say either a mountain of sin or a mountain of obedience. It's the pinnacle, but then there are long slopes down to the base. Lesser sins that contribute to and lead up to and are part of that great sin. Therefore, murder, anger. And seventh, the rule of Christ. All the commands ultimately point to Jesus. He fulfills them. He obeys them for you. He suffers them on your behalf. And he empowers us with the ability to start training ourselves in the power of the Spirit to live after them, which is a flourishing human existence. With that, three points. What it prohibits, and then what it permits or prescribes, and then who it points to. So what does the sixth commandment prohibit? You shall not murder or you shall not kill unlawfully prohibits 10 things at least. So first, the sixth commandment forbids the intentional premeditated killing of a person. And please know that. And that's the most obvious uh, application of the commandment. It prohibits cold-blooded murder. And so if you've ever studied those passages in the Old Testament 
the city of refuge passages, maybe breeze through them, but they're actually incredibly wise and compassionate. Numbers 35 is one of them. 13 of the 43 instances of the verb here is found in that one chapter. And so if you killed somebody, you could flee to one of those cities of refuge. There are a number of them, so it'd be close to you. You fled there and you pled your case to the elders of the city. And if it was judged that it was really just premeditated murder or something like that, then you received capital punishment. So you probably didn't flee if you did it. But if you didn't, and it was accidental or unintentional, it was a mistake, you'd flee there and you'd plead your case. Witnesses would come forward. And if it was found that you didn't mean to do that, then you would be spared. And you could live in the city until the death of the high priest when you went home. What that showed us is, one, that you weren't liable, and so justice was served, but also showed that any killing is a serious business, so you actually did cost you. You had to live there. You relocated, but then you got to go home. So in Numbers 35, it says, if you kill somebody with an iron tool or with stone or with wood, or you're lying in wait for them, then it was planned and premeditated. You murdered them. Second, related to this out of Numbers 35 also, the intentional yet unpremeditated killing of a person. It's like a fit of rage. It's a crime of passion. It's not cold-blooded. We'd call it voluntary manslaughter. So number 35, this guy kills a person with his fist. He has enmity, and it would include just going out of control, a fit of anger. And it was covered also in Numbers 35. You were guilty. Third, causing someone's death by recklessness or by carelessness. That's covered in Scripture. We'd call that negligent homicide. And so there's several cases that relate to that. So there's one in which a person wants to cut corners on building his house. And uh, he doesn't put a, a fence around the roof. And people use their roof as, roofs as a terrace. And so somebody falls off the roof. You were liable to their death for not having a roof, uh, excuse me, a, a fence around your roof. Or if you had a dangerous bull at the house and you knew it was dangerous, it was aggressive, and you didn't keep it in a pen, you let it go free and it gored somebody, you were liable for that death. It was reckless and careless. And so we apply that to how we drive, to driving under the influence, to safety measures at our work and other places. So there's three. And all of them mean and relate to killing or causing to be killed by direct action or inaction, a person who's legally innocent. But the command goes so much further than that. So fourth, the command says you do not kill an unborn baby. It forbids abortion. The study of human embryology has established that a new and distinct human being person exists at the point of conception. We, we believe that. The scriptures speak in though that light as well, not as a science textbook, but in that light. Psalm 139, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Notice it, it's not it, you know, it's, it's me you knitted together in my mother's room. You, you saw me. Exodus 21 has this account in which these two guys get in a fight. So they're angry at each other and they're fighting together. And yet one of them 
collides with a pregnant lady. And when he collides with the pregnant lady, the, the baby is prematurely born or something happens to the baby. And God at that moment institutes the lex talionis rule, the law of retaliation, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wound for a wound, which, which is actually a gracious law, meaning the crime, the, the punishment has to fit the crime. But he institutes it precisely at that moment saying that unborn life has rights to protection. It's a person. Fifth, the killing of someone by euthanasia. It literally means well death, mercy death, whether that life is a handicapped newborn or a very sick or declining adult whether that person gives consent or not, it doesn't matter. God is saying in this commandment, I am sovereign over lives. They're precious to me. Their value isn't linked or hinged upon their utility or their benefit to society. The value of their life is that they are image bearers of God and precious to me and I am sovereign over that life and you don't have the right to take it. I alone have that right. At the same point, we have to say, draw a distinction between terminating life and terminating treatment in extraordinary measures. Sixth, the killing of oneself, suicide. As with the temptations to abortion and euthanasia, there are reasons for that desire and we sympathize with it and we grieve it as a people. The same token we say God is sovereign over your life even when it's very hard and it seems dark and difficult. And it's not your right to take it. And even as we say this, in the positive aspect of keeping the command, we plead with someone going through depression, please stay connected and seek help. Be joined to us. We should add to this also that we take care of our bodies. We take care of our lives. We don't abuse them with alcohol and drugs. We're careful with the use of our bodies. All right, so that's six, but it even goes further than that. And the intent of the command went further than that in its original list because the 10th commandment highlights the heart when it says don't covet. So Jesus doesn't do something foreign to the command, but just brings out in a piercing way what the command entails. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount looks at us and says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and those who murder will be liable to judgment, but I say everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. That's a sobering, sobering statement. He, he, he focuses on inner motivation. He focuses on the heart. It's not just about doing violence to a person, it's about the violent emotions and intentions and feelings of our hearts that just rumble around in there. And even as I say that, let me just say, we need to be careful about feeding those 
We need to be careful about the violence we watch in our movies and on our video games. And if they lead too far into, say, kill counts and, and too much violence, we need to watch our hearts there. Is that improving my sense of the sanctity of life or not? So moving into the seventh, Jesus says we murder by getting sinfully angry with somebody. And anger in itself isn't a bad emotion. Anger is part of love. Anger is love in motion against the threat to someone or something we love. We ought to be angry in certain cases. The issue is that we're not angry with the right things and we're angry with the wrong things. Because generally speaking, what we love is self and self's idols and our kingdoms and anyone who's an obstacle to that or that threatens that, we have this explosive anger coming out to protect and defend us. So anger really can be a, can be a means of grace to diagnose what you're loving. And so trace it down in that way. Why am I so out of proportion angry here? In what way is my heart fixated here rather than fixated on Jesus and other people? There's a host of emotions related to this. If a counselor gives you an anger list, it's gonna have like a hundred descriptions of what anger is. Hate, for one, desires ill for someone rather than good. Envy, envy, you wanna take someone's good fortune away. You don't want them to have good fortune. It's a really yucky emotion. Bitterness, bitterness, maybe the worst. It's unresolved anger. You just haven't dealt with anger. It festers and brews down in your heart. It's this resentment that you have towards a person. Well, eighth, related to this, Jesus says you murder when you insult someone. Literally, that's the word raka. And uh, the word raka literally means empty head. So if you call someone empty head, Jesus says, we might say if you call them stupid or an idiot or blockhead, you know, the funny ones, numbskull, whatever it might be, bonehead, I don't know what, what's your word you may use. But the issue is we don't think those are, are bad words. And there's probably a way you can use them as a joke. The only problem is too often, if we're honest, when we use those words, there's more to it. We're wanting to convey something subtly without saying it. And so they're more wounding than we will admit to ourselves and we won't own up to the motivations behind them. And if you find that that sort of humor is more natural to you, then you better make sure those that you have that humor with know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love them and respect them. The counselor told Alan and I the other day, Alan and me the other day, that if you, even if you're gonna critique somebody, you better have a 20 to one ratio because we just absorb negativity so much and you know how it is in your heart 
Words hurt worse than sticks and stones. Critique is hard to take. We are 20 to one. We are laying on the positive. We are on a, on a hunt to catch people doing good stuff. And that's keeping the sixth commandment. Any sort of slur, any sort of offhanded remark, jab, disparaging, belittling, we're putting that to death. We want to be life givers in our speech. But we can say even more. Sixth, uh, excuse me, I just went back. Ninth, ninth, we can murder by not being merciful to somebody. It's a sin of omission. Deuteronomy 24 says, no one shall take a mill or upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. So you imagine a guy who's just broken financially. He's in a bad way. He's desperate, looking for a little money to get a little food for his family. And the guy is loaning him some money saying, okay, we'll leave your millstone. He goes, well, I can't make any money now. I can't provide for my family. It's just too much collateral. It's, It's grinding him down to the ground. It's not showing mercy. Or Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not just the, 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 rubber, the, the, the robbers who mugged him that break the sixth commandment. It's the priest and the Levite who turned a blind eye and gave him a wide berth and walked on the other side of the road. They too broke the sixth commandment. It looked cleaner, but they did it too. So our refusal, we can't help everyone, but our refusal to get involved in real suffering and hurting people is a way in which we break the commandment. Finally, 10th, and I like this one. This is Thomas Watson, the Puritan, 17th century, says the worst way we break the sixth commandment is by hurting someone's soul. If true life is eternal life, then hurting a soul is the worst way, by bad example, by wrong doctrine, by a lack of concern to speak the gospel to people. It's, it's breaking the sixth commandment. You've gone through two lists. You got one more. What it permits or prescribes. So what does it permit or prescribe? Well, overall, let's just say this. It means to be pro-life in the fullest sense of the word. So what does it mean to, to, to just celebrate human life? It means to protect and preserve and promote life. It means in our circles, our families, we are life givers. Like we give life in the way we treat people. It means we save and we serve for life. So first, there's seven. The first three are ways in which it's protected, but the sixth commandment first uh, takes the sword away from the individual and gives the sword to the state. And so uh, Paul would say in Romans 12, don't avenge yourselves. It's not your job. Ultimately, that's God's job, but God has also conferred the sword to the state. Romans 13, he says, the state is God's servant to avenge wrongdoers, to execute God's wrath. It's a way in which God protects human life. And that leads into the second. The state protects human life through the death penalty and through just war. 
The sanctity of human life in terms of the death penalty under, underlies the prohibition of both murder and also the prescription of capital punishment. We heard that today in Sunday school too. Genesis 9-6 is the base of that. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What's the reason? For God made man in his image. It's the fact of of having killed an image bearer and the gravity of that offense that dictates the gravity of the punishment for committing it. And God stresses it by saying this is the only time he prescribes the death penalty when the reason for it is the image of God in man. We might not agree with the death penalty. Someone may not agree. It's a, it's a solemn, solemn matter. We might be aware of the innocent project or things like that that have showed so many errors, but scripturally, the sixth commandment prescribes uh, the death penalty to protect life. Along with this, the just war. The state may use the sword not only against wrongdoers from within her borders, but also wrongdoers from without her borders that would seek aggression or invasion upon that land to work evil against you. And yet also, declaring war is an incredibly solemn, solemn matter. Much thought and attention of whether this is a just war must go into the equation. Third, the sixth commandment permits self-defense. An individual self-defense. Exodus 22 uh, speaks to this. It says, "If, if a thief breaks into your home at night, and you kill him, you're not liable. But if a thief breaks into your home in the daylight and you can see what's going on, then you would be liable. It's careful, but self-defense is permitted. Fourth, and this is getting closer to where we ordinarily live, the sixth command demands us to honor God by honoring his image in people. So the way in which we just show honor to those we're around, at restaurants, wherever we interact with people, at work, at school, the way we just honor people and respect people is the way in which we honor and respect God. And it's not just people like us, it's not just our group. It doesn't matter what they're like, it doesn't matter if they're disagreeable. We honor God's image in a person. So the parable of Good Samaritan, the man was seeking to narrow who the neighbor is, and Jesus says, don't bother about that. You just be a neighbor to all. In the Sermon on the Mount also, Jesus says we love our enemies. We actually pray for people who don't have our best interest at heart, who who persecute us. Our culture divides people into categories and races and classes and voting blocks and generations and almost legitimates uh, a hate, an outrage culture, an us against them. The church is distinct. We, we show courage as a church to confront movements in our society that are damaging. That is keeping the sixth commandment. At the same time, we confront with courage in the right way, with the right 
tone, with the right words, we exercise charity, and that too is keeping the sixth commandment. We don't give in to an outrage culture. We, we confront issues in the right way with respect and dignity for people. Uh, fifth, we are pro-life in the fullest sense of the word. We seek justice for those who are mistreated and marginalized. It matters to us. We, we show mercy to those suffering from sin and from sorrow. Proverbs 31, we open, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so we work to protect the unborn. We labor to help the orphan and the widow. We strive to assist the homeless and the hungry. We try to improve the condition of others that are at risk or falling through the cracks. It matters to us. So unemployment in our area matters to us. We want people to have jobs in a dignified manner. Our business practices are important. We think about this generation, but we do think about subsequent generations in the way we use resources in the environment. Immigration matters. We want clarity, we want it to be legal. We also want to realize there are real people. And in our area, we seek to assimilate well those who have arrived to us. Speaking of that, we include people. We don't exclude people at school. We don't make our little groups and make people feel bad that they don't belong to us. We don't form cliques at these hard lines between people. We seek to have porous lines. And we confront, we, we, we comfort those who are lonely. There's a host of ways that we show for pro-life in the fullest sense. Sixth, we endeavor to reconcile with those we've offended or who have offended us. We don't give in to bitterness. And so right after Jesus talks about not getting angry, he says, look, if you're about to give money to your church and recognize that somebody may have something against you, you go to them and get it right and just lay your heart out for them before you come into the church and do a spiritual work. That is more spiritual in that situation. And so it means for you and me that we own up to the fact that we are so prone to anger and guarding anger and we deal with our anger. We don't hide it, ignore it, pretend like it doesn't exist. We are those who say, I'm gonna deal with my anger. I'm gonna keep dealing with my anger. Seventh, we dedicate ourselves as a people to preserving souls. Eternity matters. Eternal life is that gift that we want everyone to have. So Matthew 16, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So we're a people who think and plan and pray that, that lost people be saved by he who is life himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We endeavor towards that as a church. That's my last list. But my last point is this, and it's actually the best point. We know we're undone in our thoughts, our words, and our actions before this commandment. By omission and commission, we just know it. We know we break it. We're gonna break it tomorrow. I mean, we're just gonna do it. But you see, this commandment points to someone. It points to life himself. It points to the one in whom we can rest as a people. 
John 1, 4 says, in him was life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Like I am like, you borrow your life from me. The antidote to our murderous poison of our hearts is, is Jesus. He provides the very life that can rescue from our murderous selves. Jesus came for the express purpose of, of, of keeping this commandment for us. Like he kept it. He kept it when he was misunderstood and maligned and beaten and crucified. He, he kept, he promoted life while that was happening to him. And not just physical life, but promoted life, eternal life. Jesus came to endure capital punishment, not at a human court, but God's court of justice. He took capital punishment, which is hell itself, on our behalf, eternal guilt for our sin. Jesus at the cross endured the venting of anger. It's it's shocking, even in the understated way in which scripture reports his crucifixion, how much wrath was directed towards him and how much derision and scorn and belittling was directed towards him. And why does the father subject him to that except that that unveils what's in our hearts? And so he took all of that, that that we have as fallen men and women, boys and girls. He paid it all and he did it to give us abundant life. And so when when he washes us clean of our sin at the cross, he breaks the sentence of sin at his death and rises victorious to live and reign at the right hand of God. To, to be pro-life is to be pro-Lord of life, is to embrace our risen, exalted Savior and to receive forgiveness and righteousness from him, to know that you're in him, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This commandment says you can't get that on your own. But I came, I sent my son to give you that life as a gift in the gospel. And so it looks at us square in the face. At the very moment it exposes the depth of our sin. At that very moment it says, this is what I've done in order to redeem you and buy you back and equip you for glory when you're gonna step into the new heavens and the new earth and you're gonna reign with me for all eternity in the life that is truly life. It points to Jesus. So I asked, one, in what way have you not lived up to it? Yes, look at it. Because when you look at that, then you say, In what way am I resting on Jesus who is life himself today? And is that your gospel today? Is that who you're relying and resting upon today? And that's your invitation through this command to come to Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand.